The conventional wisdom is that, as income inequality has grown in the United States, inequality in education has increased as well. But a major new study published this week by Education Next turns that view on its head. It shows that, when measured consistently, gaps in student achievement along lines of socioeconomic status have not grown over the past half century. But neither have they narrowed. Rather, they've been strikingly persistent. So where did the conventional wisdom go wrong? What explains the achievement gap's persistence? And what do these new results imply for the current direction of American education policy? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by the journal's senior editor, Paul Peterson, who's a professor of government at Harvard and senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Along with Eric Hanishek, Laura Talpi, and Ludger Wussman, he's the author of The Achievement Gap Fails to Close, which will appear in the summer 2019 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Paul, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Well, thank you, Marty, for having me on. So your subtitle of the article is Half Century of Testing Shows Persistent Divide Between Haves and Have-Nots. Who are the haves and have-nots? How do you measure the achievement gap? Well, we have two uh, leading definitions of haves and have-nots. The first is the difference between those in the top decile, the top 10% of the socioeconomic distribution, and those in the bottom 10%, the real extremely haves and the real extremely have-nots. And then we have a second measure, which is a little more broad. It's the top quarter of the distribution as compared to the bottom quarter of the distribution. It's the top 75% and the bottom 25%. So we talk about that as a 75-25 gap. And these are gaps in the socioeconomic distribution, as you called it. How do we measure socioeconomic status? Well, socioeconomic status is not easily measured when you're collecting data from students. Uh, Students don't have a really good idea of their parents' income. Studies back in the 1970s, 1980s documented this pretty carefully. And so people have used parental education as a measure of the household status, and they have also used the possessions in the home that are available as perceived by the students. So do you have a dishwasher? Do you have a refrigerator? Those are the old questions. Now in the modern era, do you have a computer? Do you have a bedroom of your own? So the questions change over time, but they're really measures that try to get at how much is there in the home that shows whether or not this is a well-to-do family or not. So the idea here is that students are going to struggle to report exactly how much their parents earn on an annual basis. They have very little familiarity with the concept of an annual income, but they are able to perhaps report whether their parent completed college or not, and they have a pretty good sense of whether they have a TV to watch at night. Yeah, I looked at one data set back in the 1950s when they asked this question, and uh, half the kids didn't answer it. So... I think they were pretty bewildered by that income question. And tell us a little bit about the different data sets you use in order to measure both student socioeconomic status, but also their achievement so that you can link these two concepts over time. Well, the achievement gap is pretty well documented by tests that are administered by pretty well-known organizations. The National Assessment of Education Progress is the first agency ever to do this back 
in the 1970 is when it began, and it began with a birth cohort, 1954, who those kids were 17 years of age when they were first tested. And so you're able to get back to 1954 with the NAEP, what's called the long-term trend version of the NAEP. Then in the 1990s, a new version of the NAEP comes along and in the new version, uh, there's many more observations. It begins in 1990. It sort of takes over from the long-term trend. The long-term trend is not going to be done again until 2024. So you've got these two versions of the NAEP that you can put together. And then you also have the famous PISA test that's been administered uh, internationally, the Program on International Student Assessment administered by the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. And then the th fourth one is the TIMS, the uh, Trends in Math and Science Survey, which is an international organization that's privately held. It's not a government agency as the other uh, uh, surveys are. So you have four different testing programs that you're drawing data from and importantly though you have many different administrations of each of those four testing programs. So for example the PISA has been administered every three years since 2000 so you have from 2000 to 2015 for the PISA and these tests are designed to be sort of comparable over time. So one of the unique features of your analysis is that you're measuring the achievement gap in a pretty consistent manner within each of these four testing programs. And then you can take advantage of the fact that they overlap in their time period to see that you're getting the same results across them. Well, yes, and you can also, uh, when you put all the data sets together, you compare each data set with itself. And you can do that with a, a regression analysis. So we do this uh, quadratic equation to estimate the trend over a long period of time. But we're not comparing the performance of kids on the early NAEP with the later kids on the PISA. We're only comparing the PISA kids to themselves over time, and we're only comparing the uh, long-term trend kids uh, to themselves over time. So, But you can put all that stuff into one regression analysis with the kind of statistical capacities that are now available. And so we've just now then covered two of the features of your analysis, both the fact that you're focused on socioeconomic status rather than income, as well as the fact that you're using testing programs that have been administered in a consistent way over time that really distinguish your analysis from some of the other work on this topic, and in particular the most widely cited work, which was an analysis by Sean Reardon calling attention to data suggesting that income achievement gaps have really widened in the U.S. in recent decades. Uh, is, do you think these differences are what explain the differences in your findings ultimately? Well, you know, what's, uh, when we got into this, the thing that really is striking is that nobody had ever attempted to use these tests before to see whether or not we were closing the achievement gap. It was truly amazing to me as we dug into it to think that nobody had seen this as an opportunity to address a question that everybody is talking about. And it, to the credit of Sean Reardon, he actually addresses that question to look at, okay, does family income predict student achievement better today than it did in the past? And there's only one other little study uh, uh, that's done that, and that's a study by uh, Professor Hedges at the University of Chicago. And Hedges, uh, he just sticks it into an appendix and he doesn't, he doesn't even discuss it. So really, 
Reardon puts this issue out on the agenda. Now, the one thing that he does that I don't think was the right decision was he excluded all studies that did not ask individuals uh, what the, their parents' income was. Uh, so if he doesn't have any information on the earnings of the parent, he says, I can't do this study. He ignores the fact that the possessions in the home variable is arguably a better measure of permanent income than annual earnings as estimated by a student. So he assembles a relatively limited data set of about 12 studies that where you do have an income question included in the study. But none of these studies are temporally linked. They're not linked over time. So they're just sort of cross-sectional studies. So he does the best he can with the data that he makes use of, but um, he excludes really a better set of data, at least in, in my view, it's a better set of data that could uh, more adequately address the question that was of concern to him. So we've been talking about the methods the study uses. Let's talk a bit about the findings. Uh, how big is this persistent achievement gap along the lines of socioeconomic status? Well, you know, this is where we agree with Sean Reardon. We think the gap between the top decile and the bottom decile, the 90-10 gap, he's the one who came up with that phrasing, and it's pretty good phrasing, the 90-10 gap is over a standard deviation difference. It's well over a standard deviation difference uh, at the time, in back in 1954, the birth court 1954, and it's still over a standard deviation uh, as, as late as 2001, the birth court uh, born then, and who was, that was tested in 2015. So, and that's a pretty big difference. We often say that a full standard deviation is roughly equivalent to four or so years of learning. So pretty substantial gap. Yeah, it, maybe it's three and a half, uh, four, but it's big. You know, it's the, it, we always talk about the black-white test score gap, and at one time that was over one standard deviation, and we always have said that's a huge, it's a difference between the Japanese performance in math and the U.S. performance in math. We know that's big. So this is big. This is really big. Now, the 75-25 gap, the gap between the top quarter and the bottom quarter, is not quite as big, but it's not that much smaller. It's still about 75% of standard deviation something in that range. And it's been persistent at that level over time. So if we take the birth cohort of 1954 and look at how they're performing as 17-year-olds in 1971, and we fast forward to, I think the last birth cohort you look at was born in 1999, looking at their performance as 17-year-olds very recently, we're not seeing much in the way of closing. No, you see, you know, it goes down a little bit in around 19, birth court 1980, and comes up a little bit after that. But, it, you know, it does pretty minor uh, variation. It really never falls bef below a standard deviation for the 90-10 gap. And the 75-25 uh, gap sort of trends down slightly by about one-tenth of a standard deviation, but that's pretty trivial when you're talking about the differences of this magnitude. And we've been talking just now only about gaps. What about the level of student achievement over this same time period? Because I could imagine a story about a persistent gap feeling very differently if it's in the context of rising achievement among all students than it feels if we're in a time period of stagnant achievement among all students. 
What's going on in terms of the level at which students are performing overall? Well, you know, um, uh, Rick Hanyashek and Ludger Wussman and myself, uh, some years back, I think it was in 2012, that we uh, uh, issued a report which said that uh, student achievement was had risen at about um, 8 percent of a standard deviation every decade. Uh, and that's what we find again here. So it's just... Um, it's, there's a steady increase. I, I think of this as the Flynn effect. Now, Flynn was an Australian scholar who gathered a bunch of data together. Uh, it was a bunch of different studies. It wasn't systematic at all. Um, but he said, you know what, there's a steady improvement in IQ in the United States and all around the world over the last century or more. And uh, people are just steadily getting smarter. I thought to myself when I read that, I can't believe that because he's crabbed together this data from all over the place. But you know, when we look at this data, we get pretty much the same results that the Flynn effect gets. So uh, it appears as if families are living better lives, their children are being raised in families that are better educated, that have more resources, better nutrition, better health. There's, a, there's a, a lots of good things going on worldwide that's increasing the level of student performance. And we see that in the United States and we see that all around the world, it, it, on average in, in countries all around the world. But if that's the case, then that makes another wrinkle of your findings even more puzzling, which is that you don't see as much improvement in the level of student achievement among the oldest students who data you're looking at in this study, those who were tested when they were 17, as you do among those who were closer to 14 when you conducted the analysis. As I recall, you break out and look at these two groups differently, and you see really the older students, the 17-year-olds, not much in the way of improvement, at least over the past three decades. Yeah, this is really a challenge because uh, the a group of students that I was talking about when I was talking about this steady growth over time and the ones that are measured worldwide are students at the age of 14 or age 15. And then if you look at the 17-year-old students that the NAEP has tracked over time, uh, you see that the increase is only about a standard deviation, maybe a little bit, not a standard deviation, a tenth of a standard deviation, maybe a little bit more, definitely not uh, 20% of a standard deviation, and then it fades away. You don't see any improvement over the last 25 years. So for 25 years, you see no gains among this older group of students. So why wouldn't you, why do you get a fade out of the games at, at 15? Uh, we've seen that with Head Start. Uh, Head Start shows uh, real gains from the program, but they fade away by the third grade. Well, here we see real gains in schools nationwide, well documented by age 14, they fade away by age 17. What's going on? So let's turn to what we should make of these findings, how to interpret them. And I think it's tempting to say, well, the achievement gap has persisted across nearly half a century. Uh, it may be that just nothing changed that's relevant to this disparity. Uh, but as I understand it, that's not your interpretation. Well, when you get to interpretation, you know, we're working without a lot of information at hand. We don't have any uh, data sets that allow us to estimate causal effects of uh, 
family background factors, on student achievement, or on school effects that we can rely upon to interpret the data here in a definitive way. So we have to sort of guess from the specific studies that have been done on particular populations. Uh, we have to rely on what's been um, done with respect to the white-black gap. And for the white-black gap, what's interesting there is that there has been a decline. I mean, when we're talking about the stability of the SES gap in the United States, it's, we need to emphasize that that's, we're not talking about the white-black gap. The white-black gap actually goes down by about a half a standard deviation from the beginning of this period to the end of this period. And that's one area where your findings actually dovetail nicely with those of Sean Reardon from the analysis we were discussing earlier. Both of you document closure in the white-black achievement gap. Uh, it's where you differ is, is what's happening in terms of the gaps with respect to socioeconomic or, in his case, uh, income uh, in the United States. Yes, and there are a couple of other really important studies out there. There's one by Grismer in a book by Christopher Jenks and Meredith Phillips, which uh, documents pretty clearly uh, that the uh, gap closed in the uh, latter part of the 20th century, uh, but failed to close after 1990. And that's uh, been documented by uh, other scholars, and, uh, and including uh, Sean Reardon. Yeah. And it's certainly not the case that the explanation for the persistence of the achievement gap is that policymakers haven't been paying attention to it, right? I mean, over this period that you study, we have the push for desegregation, we have the war on poverty, we have the creation of Title I and Head Start, we have the accountability movement, all of which in one way or another sought to improve the equality of educational opportunity. So given that, what should we make of the persistence of the gap? Is it that these efforts have done nothing, or is it that they're countervailing forces of some kind that, but for these efforts, would have resulted in even greater disparities? Well, I think you would say uh, 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 you'd give applause to desegregation, that uh, not only is desegregation the right thing to do, uh, but it actually had beneficial consequences uh, for the white-black gap, uh, because the white-black gap does close when we are increasing the degree of integration in our schools and it stops closing after we stop making further progress in that domain. So I think that was uh, a plus, but it didn't really address the SES gap. You might even begin to wonder if, it, if the integration wasn't occurring among the middle class black population rather than the black population taken more generally. Uh, now, the, the other interventions were mainly financial. The federal government saying, we're going to give more money to school districts uh, to concentrate resources on inner city schools. We're going to give uh, a more, we're going to, we're gonna, the courts started ordering school districts to spend more money uh, in uh, places in the country where less money had been spent in the past. And uh, there was a big effort in preschool education, the Head Start program being the best example, but there's a lot of state programs as well. Uh, and those programs don't seem to have had the same uh, effect unless it is the case that they had positive effects, but these were offset by a decline in teacher quality. So that's the topic that we are bringing up as part of this study that we want people to ponder. It's not like we can prove that teacher quality 
is contributing to a perpetuation of the SES gap. But we think that that's a topic that people really need to think about. Well, this long half century that you look at here is a period where it's proven increasingly challenging uh, to attract high caliber people into the teaching profession if at least we mean people who have attended more selective rather than less selective universities. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One is the greater availability of alternative job opportunities for women uh, beyond teaching, uh, but also the fact that in the past couple of decades, at least, teacher wages have declined substantially relative to those of other college-educated workers. And so you and your co-authors really highlight teacher quality as one of the things that may be undermining other attempts to address inequality. Right, and we also know that uh, teacher wages have remained compressed when uh, women, and this really, we're talking about women especially here because they're 75% of the teaching force, and they're now able to get jobs in uh, parts of the economy which don't have a compressed wage schedule, and you can actually earn a lot of money if you're a very talented person, and so, the kind of people that we're losing from education are the most talented women. And uh, Sean Corcoran's uh, documented that from the period 1960 to 2000, that there has been a substantial departure of the most talented women out of the field of education. So what's the bottom line here? What do you want policymakers to take away from this incredibly comprehensive and exhaustive analysis of 50 years of data on American students' achievement? Start looking at teacher quality, number one. Wait, I have to stop you there. Start looking at teacher quality. We're just at the end of a decade where there's been an intensive focus on teacher quality. Do we need to look at it in a new way, perhaps? Well, you know, the federal government has asked states to come up with plans to uh, make sure that teachers are an effective teaching force. but they have not been effectively implemented. I mean, it's been mostly talk and very little walk when it comes to teacher quality. And we gotta start walking the talk. And, and, the, and the other thing we haven't even done the talk on, and that is high school reform. If kids are making some progress up through age 14 and no progress at age 17, this is telling us something about our high schools. And the No Child Left Behind and so many of the other interventions out there have concentrated their efforts on the elementary and middle schools and not paid much attention to the high school. And we're never going to solve the problem of preparing kids for going to college or entering the workforce until we have a more effective high school. My guest today has been Paul Peterson. Senior Editor of Education Next and co-author of The Achievement Gap Fails to Close, available now at educationnext.org. Paul, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thank you, Marty. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. While you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.